Psalm 119, starting in verse 33. Teach me, O Lord, the way of your statutes, and I will keep it to the end. Give me understanding that I may keep your law and observe it with my whole heart. Lead me in the path of your commandments, for I delight in it. Incline my heart to your testimonies and not to selfish gain. Turn my eyes from looking at worthless things and give my life in your ways. Confirm to me, confirm to your servant your promise that you may be feared. Turn away the reproach that I dread, for your rules are good. Behold, I long for your precepts. In your righteousness, give me life. And this is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. When we got together for sermon chat this week and began to discuss this passage, um, it was on all of our hearts to introduce, introduce this passage of Scripture in such a way that, that makes you realize what precedes it. See, the book of Hebrews, as we've talked about over and over again, has been a lot of comparisons to demonstrate how Jesus is the greater. No other book in the New Testament combines more of the Old Testament and New Testament together. Hebrews makes it mandatory for us to go, what does the Old Testament say and how does Jesus fulfill the Old Testament? It demands that the reader go back and look at the law and look at Moses' teachings and the instruction God gave the people of Israel and, and, see, and show how it, it, it stopped short, but that God created it to stop short. God created it to point to something greater and the need for something greater in Jesus Christ. Hebrews shows that Jesus is the fulfillment of those things. The only other book in the New Testament that closely compares to Hebrews is the Gospel of Matthew. In the Gospel of Matthew, it's all about Jesus is the promised Messiah. And so over and over again in Matthew, you hear this little tagline that was said, and these things happen to fulfill, boom. To fulfill, boom. It's quite literally the Gospel for the Jews to understand that Jesus is the promised Messiah, and all the promises, the prophecies are fulfilled in him and what he's come. This morning, as we look at this, a life, as we've talked about this over and over in Hebrews, there's some strong warnings in this book. There's some strong passages about making the statement, I want you to stop drinking milk, and I want you to start eating meat. I want you to progress past this, this, this 
little place in your life where you wonder if you're a believer or wonder if you're not a believer, but rather to gain and grow in confidence in what the Lord's done because he wants to move you past this point to the deeper understandings, the deeper teachings of Scripture so that you might grow in abundance in the Lord and live the life that he's called you to live. And God gives us this great calling through the book of Hebrews, but he does so when it's completely couched in the words of draw near. That you're to, to go do these things for God by drawing near to God. And that you've got this great, merciful, sympathetic high priest. You know, I had a, somebody come to me last week and they were sharing with me, like, they had this epiphany and it struck them that they've just never realized before that Jesus Christ is still in bodily form in heaven right now. That the Godhead forever changed at the first advent of Jesus Christ. Forever changed and that God became fully God, fully man and has remained this way now. And that God did this out of his great love for us and desire. And there's a song, there's a line in that song that we just sung that makes me uncomfortable that God brought heaven down. Does that make anybody else feel uncomfortable? But when Jesus Christ came down, heaven came down. But we're not worth that. We're not, we, we have no significance, no value that God would do that except for God's great love for us. So this whole sermon this morning is couched in this understanding of look what Jesus has done. And that a person who believes that Jesus is the great high priest, is the greatest sacrifice, brings us to the greater temple, that if we truly believe these things, that it changes us and it changes our desires. That if we believe this, our heart is reoriented from wanting to please ourselves and do the selfish things of this world to now please God. I love Psalm 119. I didn't used to like Psalm 119. It was when you're doing your reading through the Bible, you're in a plan, you're like, how like, can I get through this book? It's like three days in the Bible reading plan, right? Still in Psalm 119. Still in Psalm 119. I'm like, why the repetitive stuff? And then it's hit me. The psalmist loves God's law. The psalmist loves God's rules. And he sees all of life being oriented towards living for God because the psalmist loves God. And he sees the way I show you my love, God, is by hearing your words and obeying them. He says that in a myriad of different ways. And so this morning, if we're sitting here and we're saying we love Jesus and we are so grateful for him coming in the first advent, for him coming as an infant and as a child, and for living him, subjecting himself to his own creation, and for dying upon the cross for our sins and rising from the grave, if we say we love Jesus and we're so appreciative for what he's done for us, then we're hanging on every word he says. We're hanging on, Lord, if he says do this, we're like, yes, I want to do that because I love Jesus. And so when he says my yoke is easy and my burden is light, when he gives us commands in scripture, we're not going, oh, what a bag of rocks this is. But we're going, this is, 
He's telling me this because he, he loves me and he wants me to have this amazing life in him. I love that final line, that, that get this, let your righteousness give me life. We can't have life apart from the righteousness of God. And so he's calling us to, to live this way. And so if we, re, if we go back here, oops, I just closed my Bible. I'm not supposed to do that when you're in the middle of your sermon. Supposed to be the dramatic ending of your sermon. You close the Bible and everybody knows, okay, this is it. Right? In 12 28, he says, Therefore, okay, this is again, the, the author of Hebrews loves dropping these in there, summarizing, bringing things to a conclusion, helping us understand what we're supposed to do in light of what he's taught us. Therefore, based on chapter 12 and what's preceded it, let us be grateful. Let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. That what we do and what we, how we live in this life matters. That someday the fiery judgment of God will consume those things that we've done out of selfish ambition, out of trying to earn right standing with God, out of those evil and wicked things in our hearts, right? We were talking as elders and just, do you know your elders? I, I want you to know this. Your elders, when we get together, we do, we do a lot of confessing together. And, and we were sharing this week. I was like, yeah, there's some mornings that, you know, I, I like to go and set up the Kidville things. And before Kidville, it's like, there's some of those times that I, I set up for Kidville that, that that's going to get consumed in the fire. Because I was down there with a the grumbling heart and wanting recognition from man. You see, the author of Hebrews is saying, therefore, if you, if you believe this and if you want to live this, you're going to have a grat- heart full of gratitude and a worship that will not be consumed by fire. An acceptable worship well, the question that maybe should be hanging on our minds at this point in the book, well, what does it mean? What does it look like for us to have acceptable worship? Great question. So glad you asked that question so I can continue on in my sermon. Okay, verse 13, or chapter 13 is how. This is how. Like, we love Jesus. We want to have a heart of gratitude. We want to have a life of acceptable worship. So this is how. So we look at these as not as burdens. We look at these not as as these laws inscribed on walls to weigh us down, but rather to give us life. So when we hear this this morning, I want you to receive it in that manner. This isn't a burden. And if it feels like a burden, then we got to go back a step and say, "Do do I really love Jesus? Do I really want to hear what he has to say for me? We begin here in verse, chapter 13, verse 1. Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, and thereby some have entertained angels unawares. You know, as I was thinking about all these these things that we're going to discuss this morning, I was reminded, you know, as, as as a child, my parents would always tell me, when you become a parent, you'll understand, right? I thought mom and dad's rules were limiting in somehow, shape, or form. Like, running in the street. I should have the freedom to run in the street when I want to run in the street, right? But 
no, that wasn't a good idea. I mean, when you're on the farm, not such a big deal. But all of a sudden, when you're living in a city and you're acting like you're living on the farm, big deal. Really big deal, okay? Because on the farm, nobody's coming for a long time. And if they do, it's usually a tractor. And it's like, it's like that slow motion thing, and you're, you're going to be okay. But in the city, cars move a lot quicker. And when you're out riding your bike and your car's coming down the hill and you decide just to swerve out in front of the, the car, yeah, thank you for tanning my hide for that. <laughs> Giving me something to remember so that, guess what, I don't do that again. That, that wasn't to give me a burden. That was to give me life, quite literally. My, my mom smacking my hand when I reach for the hot pan that's on the stove and I'm about ready to dump the thing on over my head. And my mom smacks my hand. Like, she literally doesn't want me to walk around with scars for the rest of my life. She wants me to have life and have it to the fullest abundance that I can have. So she disciplined me. She gave me rules so that I could have life. Well, in Hebrews chapter 12, we learned even more so, does God train our hearts for righteousness? So these things that are given here are given to us so that we may have righteousness and this abundant life in him. And we wouldn't say what our parents did in those times was unloving or unkind. Well, even more so, we should not say that God is unloving and unkind here. The first thing he says here is to love one another. This is the first group. And I'm breaking this passage down to three different sections. Love one another. Love your leaders, which is going to, we'll get to that in a moment. And then finally, how and why do we do all this? This first section here, he says, let brotherly love continue. You know what word is used there? It's Philadelphia. Which is an interesting term. There's a, there's a nuanced difference between agape love, which God often calls us, and agape love is the perfect love of God. Phileo love is more of this love that comes along the kind of love that we care for one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. We care for each other's needs. We meet each other's needs. And so what is he saying? He's saying care for each other's needs. If you know Jesus is your high priest, care for each other's needs. Meet each other's needs. Love one another. If somebody's sick, you go be with them. You nurse them back to health. If somebody's Low on financial means, you support one another in financial means. You give to each other's needs. If someone's mourning, you go sit with them in their grief. If someone's joyful, you rejoice with them in their joy. Even if you're not like feeling it in that moment, you rejoice in what God is doing in their lives. You have great joy with them. And even if you're having a great day and somebody else is mourning, you take time to go mourn with somebody and be present with them. Love one another. Care for each other's needs. But you can't do that. I'm going to harp on this. If this is all you know of church, first off, I'm sorry for you. It breaks my heart. Because you don't get a Philadelphia each other if this is all you know of church. We don't, we don't get a care for each other that way on a Sunday morning. It happens Monday through Saturday and later today. And how we care for one another, we're present with each other, and we're loving each other, and we're strengthening each other as we're part of each other's lives. That means we've got to drop the walls. Men, it means that there's no mach, macho, just get rid of it, right? Like this whole, like, 
I, I'm too you know, prideful to ask for help, or I'm too prideful to, be, to seek forgiveness. All that stuff has got to go away, because it's worthless. There was no bigger man's man than Jesus Christ, our Lord. None. And you don't see him doing that. He has great compassion. He has great mercy. He weeps over his lost loved ones. He weeps over broken cities. He shows great emotion. It's not a spiritual gift to be isolated. Okay? God calls us that if we understand this, that we will love each other. And it's great. And a lot of people in here are like, yeah, I get that, man. I really enjoy I'm in part of a life group. I'm part of a, a group where we love each other well. We care for each other's needs. Paul shared a wonderful God story last week about how he was against life groups. Now he's drawn into it. And he's, he, he is just seeing the benefit of being cared for. And, and I would say, Paul, 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 you will forgive me for saying this, but Paul's a man's man. He was a colonel in the Air Force, okay? You don't become a full bird colonel in the Air Force without having some thick skin. And going through a lot of hard stuff. And so Paul had to become very strong on his feet. But I've noticed since I've gotten to know Paul over the last few years, and he's going to probably throw something at me for saying this, I've watched a guy who's really strong become way more dependent on the body of Christ and become more tender and loving and compassionate. And it's been beautiful to watch. I've watched the depth of Paul's love for Jesus grow and grow and grow as he tends to and cares for others, and he allows others to care for him. It's beautiful to watch. But the next love here, he goes on to say, do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, and thereby some have entertained angels unaware. What's very interesting about the word here, the word for Philadelphia, which is philo, and which is love, and Delphia, which comes with the caring of brotherhood. Well, guess what? This is philoxenos, is the word used for strangers here, which is love strangers. So the same way we care for each other, we should care for the stranger. This is where it gets uncomfortable. Care for brothers, sisters, we got a commonality, Jesus Christ, that's easier to do. Strangers, where's the commonality? It may not be received well, it may be pushed back from, it may be ignored. You may receive nothing in return for your giving and caring. But he says, do it anyways. If you understand Jesus and what he's done for you, you're going to care for the stranger. You're going to love them. And then he goes on to say, and what's really cool, and we've heard those, those little raise your hairs on storm stories kind of things when, when we hear people like caring for someone and then that, that, that person's gone. Like, what just happened there? Was that an angel? He's saying, the text says, as people have been caring for strangers, some have entertained angels unaware. You never know who you're doing this for, but ultimately, it's always for who? God. Because if it's not, then we're not storing our treasures up in heaven. He goes on next to say, remember those who are in prison as though as those in, in prison with them. And those who are mistreated, since you also are in the body. You know, we had a great discussion about this passage. Is this a general, just we're supposed to have great prison ministry. Is this a, a vision verse for a prison ministry? While I would say it could possibly use for that, it, it, 
probably steps outside of what the book of Hebrews intends because he's talking about the persecuted, unjustly mistreated. And then the book, he's already given them credit for, hey, I know better things for you in chapter 10 because you've done this. You've cared for those that are in prison and persecuted. We're supposed to love, remember, think about those are being persecuted in the faith. And I don't think we're very good at that. And I think we somehow think that if we do that, it'll suck the life out of our Christianity. I tell you what, it'll give you greater joy remembering those who are persecuted, those who are suffering for their faith, those who are being murdered because they make a statement of faith, those who are being ostracized, raped, because they make a profession of faith in Jesus Christ. Like, I'll be honest, it doesn't cost us much in America to believe in Jesus. But we've got missionaries. We've got future missionaries that are getting ready to go into places that it could cost them their very lives and their very children's lives. We need to be thinking about them. We need to be praying for them. We need to be part of their ministry, giving financially, praying for them, encouraging them, sending letters to them. That's one thing we're doing as life groups now, is our life groups, we're asking each one of our life groups to adopt a missionary and write to them, interact with them, pray for them, because we've done a bad job of it at LSC for the last, ever since I've been the pastor here, of communicating and loving on our missionaries and those who are being persecuted around the world. We want to do a better job with that. Jennifer Snyder, Dwight Keegan are leading that charge for this church body. And I hope your ears perk up and you get excited about praying for and thinking of those who are not here but are laying it on the line for Jesus Christ. We're to love them. Then out of left field, here he goes. And this is just the hot topic. We'll just, we'll just quickly glide over this. Let marriage be held in a marriage be held in honor among all and let the marriage bed be undefiled for God will judge the sexually immoral and the adulterous. Before I continue saying anything more, these are not my words. I want you to hear that clearly for me. Matthew chapter 19, starting in verse one, when Jesus had finished saying these things, he left Galilee and went into the region of Judea to the other side of Jordan, large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. Some Pharisees came to test him, and they asked, Is it a lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female? I want to stop there. Jesus just set the standard for what marriage looks like. Okay? That doesn't mean we act unloving, unkind, or hateful towards the people who don't hold to this viewpoint. No, they're without Christ and we need to point them towards Christ, okay? So this isn't an excuse for hate. He's just saying, if you're a child of God, this is the standard for marriage, male and female, okay? It's defined for us. Jesus said it. These are not my words. And, and said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and, be, and mother and be united to his wife. The two shall become one flesh, so they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. There is a union, a covenant that takes place between a man and a woman, and especially for those who are in Jesus Christ. 
we shouldn't be surprised when we see an unbelieving couple end up in divorce. Okay? But for Christians, it should shock us to the core. But I'm afraid it doesn't anymore. I'm afraid we've become accustomed to it in the church. And according to Jesus, no. No, it should not take place for those who are children of God. Why then, they asked, did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? Jesus replied, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard. You were unable to forgive. But it is not this way from the beginning. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another woman, commits adultery. This is hard, guys and gals. Jesus just set the bar really, really high. And I don't want to come at this unloving, but at the same time, I don't want to come at this too lightly because Jesus said these things. Why does he say them? Because he wants to give us life and give it to us abundantly. Because one of the greatest gifts we can ever give our kids is a man and a woman that work through it all together. And they get to watch that. And they get to see that. But sin is inside the church and outside the church. And it's a problem we deal with. And there are marriages in this room that were ended in divorce for other than sexual immorality. And they've been remarried. I want to encourage you this morning, if that is you, there's God's grace available for you. But confess it. God, I, I wrongly got a divorce. And I wrongly remarried. And I brought this other person into an adulterous relationship because I violated your commandments. And God can say, I forgive you. And he can redeem your marriage and it can become something beautiful. But the longer we push against saying I was justified because that person didn't make me happy or blah, blah, whatever reason we use for divorce, and as long as we don't seek forgiveness for that, there is this huge wall between what God desires for you and what you're living out right now. And God says, I, wanna, I want that to be washed clean. I want that to no longer have any rule or reign in your current marriage and what God's doing for you. So confess it, and God says, I am faithful and just to forgive you of your sins. Just confess it. Notice what the disciples say. They get this. The disciples said to him, if this is the situation between a husband and wife, it's better not to marry. Boy, the disciples, for being some thick-headed numbskulls sometimes, they got that. <laughs> it's supposed to be one. But because of the hardness of men's heart, because of things like... And it, but the beautiful thing, I want, to, I want you to hear more than anything else, and Tom was really good at... Like, people should not hear legalism and law on Sunday. They should hear God's grace. And I want you to hear God's grace. God is standing ready to forgive you for that. It's just we got to confess it so that that has no longer rule or dominion over your marriage. And if you confessed it, thank you. Praise be to God 
that dad is not having any rule or reign over your life. And I'm excited for your marriage. God, God could do amazing things to your marriage. And what's really cool is you get to share this story with your kids. Yeah, we messed up, but God's glory is greater. And I don't want that for you. And I hope you don't have to go through that. And I'm going to walk with you and journey with you and say sin is sin. And we're going to call sin, sin. And, but God's glory is greater. His majesty is greater. His might is greater. The blood of Christ is completely able to wash things clean. So hear me this morning. Please, on this topic. Verse 11, Jesus replied, Not everyone can accept this word, but only those to whom it has been given. For there are eunuchs who were born that way, and there are eunuchs who have been made that way by others. And there are those who choose to live like eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. The one who can accept this should accept it. It's hard being married. It takes work. You know, Christy and I will celebrate 25 years together, and it has not been a walk in the park. But there's no other option in our marriage but to go forward, ever. Because there is no grass is greener, there is nothing brighter, because it's all a, forf- a counterfeit and a lie. Christ said, life is the greatest life if you live it the way I've commanded you to live it. That's the best life you can have. And if you're here this morning and you've gone through divorce and that thing, I want you to hear loud and clear God's grace is sufficient and his love. He, he, remember, remember this statement, and I hope you believe the truth of this. You can't do anything to have God love you more today. And you can't do anything to have God love you less today. Hear that, please. He doesn't love you more because you're married, you're with your original spouse, and he doesn't love you less if you're not. I hope you hear that loud and clear. There's just a matter of confession, repentance, and, and giving it all to God and surrendering it all to God. And this is just part of this. And maybe you're hearing this for the first time this morning. And again, these aren't my words. These are Jesus' words. So I don't want to dwell. We've got a lot to cover this morning, but I, I just want you to hear this loud and clear because I don't know if we've been clear on this topic before. And I want us to be crystal clear. Jesus made out this light. And if we haven't met that standard, God's grace is sufficient. And if you have questions on this, please come and talk to me. Please, please, please do not sit in silence and let the negative thoughts swirl around in your head and let the evil one have any foothold to draw, draw you and your spouse apart or to have any foothold and draw you away from your relationship with God. If you've got questions, come and talk with me, please. And I won't, I'm not standing here in condemnation over you. Please hear me there. It is by the grace of God. I remember Christy and I one night like, I was sleeping in the living room, not really sleeping, lying on the couch, and she's in the bed. And I thought, this is it. This is it. This is where our marriage ends. And if not by the grace of God, if not by God's hand, it would have. So I'm not sitting here saying, I've got it all figured out. Lord, have mercy. My wife will clean that, clear that up for you quickly. I don't have it all figured out. And some of you are hurt this morning by people 
breaking your heart and leaving and forsaking that covenant of marriage, that divorce is not your sin. They have forsaken the covenant of marriage and they have gone into sexual immorality. And according to scripture, you're free. You're free to live either single or married again. That's God's freedom. He has set you free. And as Forrest Gump would say, that's all I have to say about that. (laughs) Figured we need a levity after that. All right. Verse 5. Keep your life free from a love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper and I will not fear what can man do to me. Listen, we love God. We love others. We love strangers. We love the imprisoned. We love marriage. We love our spouses. We love other people's marriages. We're so, we're so in love with marriage because this is this covenant relationship God has formed that we're going to help other people through problems. And we love God. And, and, and the way we demonstrate our love to God is by trusting him. Because ultimately, when we live for the material things, we don't trust in God. And God is saying, trust me. Then he moves on here. After finishing this section, he seems to change gears with this whole relationship with God's leaders. Why in the world does he go into this thing about God's leaders, about our love for God's leadership? I think that there's a really important thing to understand that was going on historically that we see brought out here in a few verses. The history of of when Jesus came, as you got to understand a little bit of history of Israel, Romans had come in, taken over the area, and one of the Romans would like to do in ways they, they, they noticed that if they brought a leader from Rome into a foreign area and established his authority and his power, people tend to rebel against that. So what they would like to do is they find some quasi-leader that they could find that was somewhat of a local and establish him in powder, power and have him reign over an area or be in charge over an area, understanding that they are fully underneath authority of Rome. Okay, and be like this puppet figurehead and rule over the people so that the people would tend to rebel, yes, because they were, quote-unquote, somewhat akin to the local. Well, Herod was this guy. Herod was this guy, half Jew, half Gentile, okay? Put in power by Rome. Don't miss that. And instead of the people of Israel, by the Levites, which would normally in the Old Testament choose who would be the high priest. But Herod now was the one that was choosing who would be the high priest. So the Pharisaical situation, the Sadducees, all these religious leaders, the scribes, were being influenced by Rome through Herod. And the whole system was broke. And the thing that you were supposed to come to the temple and offer sacrifices, and it was supposed to be this act of worship to God, but instead it was just broken and ugly and full of wickedness and sin. And we see this when Jesus comes into the temple courts and there are money changers ripping people off. And Jesus cast them out with great anger. The system was broken and it was egregious to the Lord. So, What is your perspective of religious leadership if you were raised in this time? You don't look at Pharisees and Sadducees with awe, but rather, that's a crook, that's a crook, that's a he's a big crook. Now all of a sudden God is saying, wait a minute, leadership is something that I've always appointed, and leadership is something to be to be to desired out of 1 Timothy. He has to tell these people, you need to love leaders. 
And he couches this in the following statements. Verse 7, remember your leaders and those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their faith, oh, excuse me, outcome of their life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's calling the, the, the people that the author of Hebrews is calling these people to hey, look to your leaders and imitate their faith. And understand these leaders are the ones that are saying that this is the gospel. The gospel is found in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the Messiah. He is the fulfillment of the law. He is the greater sacrifice. Like these are what the leaders are promoting. He's saying, hey, as they're leaving, leading you, imitate their faith. Because to be a Christian leader at this time especially was difficult. And he's saying imitate their faith. And I, I preach these words to you this morning. I talk to these, working with you about these things with great humility because I know my own life. But the calling for us as elders and leaders in this church is that we, our faith demonstrates growth in God and reliance on God in such a way that it should be looked up to or desired to by the body of Christ. Now, that doesn't mean that we're without sin. I want to be very clear there because part of what he says here is consider the outcome of the way of their life. You're to look at my life. You're to look at the leaders in this church's lives. And you're to see the fruit that we're bearing. And if the fruit that we're bearing is not righteous and it isn't good, then we're to be brought into accountability. That's why it's real important for you to know your elders, to spend time with them and to, to hang out with them and to hear from them regularly. And that's what we're trying to do as a church body. Every two weeks, we're trying to get in front of you with our other elders and share what's going on so that you get to know them. And on Christmas Eve, they're going to share a personal story with you so you get to know them more. Because they're supposed to be the folks that when your marriage is struggling, when your spiritual journal is struggling, that you go to them and you talk to them and say, I'm struggling. And they encourage your faith. Don't get misled. Verse 9, this is, a, this, is a, this is a fun one. Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods which have been benefited those devoted to them. We, we have an altar from which the, those who serve the tent have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the camp, outside the gate, in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Okay, what in the world's going on here? Listen, he's telling them, don't go back to the temple and start offering sacrifices. Don't go back to the Jewish way of life. Okay? Don't be misled. You've got hundreds, thousands of years of history leading up to this point, but there's a new covenant, and Jesus is the mediator of the new covenant, and that has been crystal clear in the book of Hebrews. So don't go back to the old covenant ways. Don't be misled by the old or by the new. Don't be misled. And if any elder or if any leader in this church body, if anybody in this body starts to lead someone away from the gospel of Jesus Christ, you sound the alarm. You text me, you text every elder you know and say, somebody just said Jesus isn't the son of God. Somebody just said that Jesus was somehow sinful in the flesh. Somebody, like, you, like, somebody said there is no trinity. Like, you sound a stinking alarm. 
And with love and great compassion, we'll come around this individual and try to understand where they're coming from and what caused them to believe what they believe in them and correct them in their teaching. We're not here to kick people out. We're here to people restore people's faith. Do you understand that? Let's be really clear. We're here to restore people's faith and, and see that false teaching done away with. Understand? Super important. We, we don't want to be misled. And it's the leader's responsibility and job to ensure that the flock is not misled. We're to be a living sacrifice. Verse 13, therefore let us go to him outside the camp and bear the approach he endured. For we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Through him then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of the lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have. For such sacrifices are pleasing to God. We've talked a lot about being a living sacrifice. As leaders, we're supposed to emulate that. And finally says, obey your leaders and place yourself under their authority. That's pretty cut and dry. But don't do it to leaders that are not living biblically. Okay? Continue to examine our fruit. And finally, leaders enjoy loving the flock. Elders, I'm speaking to you. Future elders, I'm speaking to you. I have heard way too many pastors, I have heard way too many spiritual leaders sit there and complain about the flock as a bunch of dumb sheep that are a bunch of knuckleheads that don't understand anything, that don't ever get going in the right direction, so it's necessary to wrap people across the head. Listen, it is a joy and a privilege to help you on the journey of faith. It is an honor to be the one that you call when things aren't going right, when you have a doubt. It is such a privilege. And it's with great joy that I know that your elders want to be there for you. And so we mean it night or day. If your kid stubbed his toe and you're calling us, right? But... If you're married, if you're in a fight and you don't know which way, or if you're doubting your faith and you're wondering, is this, is this where I walk away from God? You call us. You reach out day or night, and it's the most important thing we do is to care for your spiritual relationship with Jesus. It is a joy. It is an honor, and it is a privilege. And it is something we do with great sincerity, and love for you. Finally, he says here in 18, we covet your prayers as, a, as leaders in the church. And, and I think this call to pray for Paul is also to pray for the church-wide leadership. Pray for leaders throughout the world. Pray for those churches that are giving in to false teachings and doctrine that God would restore them. Anybody feel like this is a pretty high standard that Jesus just, through the author of Hebrews, painted for us? Yeah, a few, I've seen a few nods. The rest of you fell asleep 10 minutes ago. Okay, how and why? And I'll close with this. I would love it if you commit this to memory because this is the how and the why. How do we live such a faith? Why do we live such a faith? This is the answer, starting in verse 20. Now may the God of peace, who brought again 
from the dead, our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. How? Jesus. Why? Jesus. How do you honor your marriage? How do you love brothers? How do you love strangers? How do you pray for those that are persecuted? How do you trust God, Jesus? Jesus gives you the ability and the power by the blood of the covenant that we're underneath a new covenant because he has washed us clean. Why? Because Jesus said to do it. Because Jesus wants for us this amazing, abundant life in him. It's not apart from suffering. It's not apart from troubles and trials. But it's the life. Because guess what? Whether you're a believer or not believer, you're going to go through trials and troubles. You're going to do it. The beautiful thing, though, is Christians, we get to do it with hope and great expectation. That he's using this for his glory and our good and our benefit. So how? Jesus, why? Jesus. How? Jesus. Why? Jesus. How? Jesus. Why? Jesus. We're going until you say something, Luke. How? <laughs> why? Jesus. See, it, 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 you're like, oh, that's too simple. It, it, not really. You dive into Hebrews, all of a sudden you're going, no, this is, this is two miles deep. But praise God, this is the life that he's called us to. This is what love is on this day of Advent that we celebrate God's love. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Father God, thank you. Lord, we are so, so grateful for you for the book of Hebrews that you have called us to a very high standard of living and we rejoice in that because you want us to experience amazing things in Jesus Christ. You want us to know Jesus and be close, intimate relationship with him, to walk with him, to hear from him, to be guided by him. Thank you, God, for loving us so much. And Father God, I pray that as we spend time in community and as we hear a powerful God story today, Lord God, you would continue to touch our hearts as we worship during this time and conclude music and we prepare for this Christmas season. And may we really think about the first coming of Jesus, but with great anticipation look towards the second advent. And may we live for that advent. May we live for the day when our King returns. The trumpets blast and the whole earth hits their knees. When every child of the king in every place cries out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is. In Jesus' name we pray. By the power of the Holy Spirit.